This week on Life and Faith. For a long time, I've realized that I approach my work as a teacher as much as a preacher than anything else. I'm not preaching a particular doctrine, but I'm preaching moral seriousness, taking your life seriously, thinking about the good life. And secular modernity hasn't really developed a vocabulary that I found to do that with that carries the kind of weight that religious language does. The systems that we trust in to know have broken down. You know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. But I've learned that even when it doesn't go well, I can be okay. What's the best way to understand the world and to live in it? Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Well, what is an education for? Where do we go to find meaning in life? These are the kinds of questions we're exploring today, mostly through Justine's conversation with author and former Yale professor William Derezowitz. Tell us about him, Justine. He's a fascinating person. Yeah, he really is. William Derezowitz is the author of, most recently, The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. And I really should have asked him about that because that's really, it sounds really intriguing. But the reason I did uh, want to have him on the podcast was because of a book that he'd published several years ago. It was the best-selling Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. Well, this is a great title. He's got a great thing with titles, doesn't he? Well, I read Excellent Sheep while researching a little book on achievement addiction. And of all the books that I read for that project, this was the one that I couldn't put down. Because here was a conversation about the things that really matter in life and then all the things that get in the way of what actually matters, including getting a quote-unquote good education that's supposed to prepare you for the workplace. Right. And he's talking about elite education in the US. So you felt that this translates to an Australian context too, right? Yeah. Well, our universities really don't have the same glamour or prestige as Yale or Harvard or any of those types of places. But I do think that, you know, we'll be able to listen to this conversation and make it Mm. make sense for ourselves. I also think that recent government announcements about fee changes for particular uni degrees, Mm. which you know, you could argue are channeling people towards jobs that we're expected to need in the future. This tells you that we're having similar conversations in this country. You know, what is the value of an education? You know, should it just be about making future employees or is there something else going on as well? Yes. And that, the discussion around the humanities, getting charged more for people going to do a humanities degree, you're going to have to pay more and the sort of sidelining of those. That was very alarming to me. Uh, we could have a whole discussion around <laughs> that. But I guess, on the other hand, there is a way in which at least some of this education needs to be preparing people for the workforce. Yeah, and I think Bill really gets that as well. He doesn't want to dismiss that. But he's just making a really strong case for why there's more to education than that. So, here's Justine's conversation with William Derezowitz, author of Excellent Sheep. I started by asking him to explain to us the excellent sheep metaphor, particularly for an Australian audience. Excellent sheep is a phrase that popped out uh, unexpectedly from the mouth of one of my students when I was teaching at Yale in a start kind of moment of startled self-recognition as a description of herself and her peers. You know, are we excellent sheep? And I used it as the title of the book, not just because it's a striking phrase, but because I really think it encapsulates the essence of what I'm saying in the book. 
Uh, these students are excellent. So what students am I talking about? Uh, students at elite American universities, but really it can go, it goes beyond that, the top 12 or 20 institutions. Uh, I would say at least 100 colleges and universities fit into, you know, highly selective colleges and universities. One of the big things that I've learned since the book came out is that this phenomenon exists in other countries as well. I would venture to say that it exists in Australia, certainly in Great Britain and you know, East Asian countries, especially since many of them send students to our schools, uh, India, certainly. So these these young people are excellent, but that doesn't mean exactly what I think they think it means and what it means to the people who tell them how excellent they are. Mm. Excellence in this context means being very good at checking the boxes, getting the scores, doing the work, pleasing the adults. It supposedly also implies excellence of other kinds, you know, it correlates, it translates into, well, here's what I don't think it translates into, but people think it probably does. It doesn't necessarily translate into deep thinking, into genuine curiosity, into the ability to self-direct, moral passion, um, a sense of who they are, a real sense of inner strength and inner direction. And here's where we get to the second half, the second word, they're sheep. In the sense that, and of course there are exceptions, but I mean, this is what I saw over and over again with my students and have heard from now from many students at many schools. They're not equipped to figure out what they want to do with their lives because the whole process of getting into these schools has been about doing what other people expect them to do. So what do they want to do? They're not sure what they want to do. And they haven't been equipped with the means to figure out what they want to do. So they tend to follow the herd. I don't know what the pattern is in other countries, but in the United States, an overwhelming preponderance of students who graduate from elite schools go into one of five professions, the most affluent and prestigious professions, law, medicine, finance, consulting, and now tech. What was the other question you asked me? Oh, oh, what do like, I mean by the elite? Yeah, well, right. look, I don't mean the elite as the term tends to get used in, in right-wing media, meaning the left elite or the media, the media intellectual academic elite. I mean the elite writ large, uh, those people who have the charge of the institutions and governments that run society, the people who occupy the commanding heights, both of the culture and of the economy. Some of them are on the left, some of them are on the right. It, it includes the business elite, in other words, um, the nonprofit elite. And that's why this is so important. It's important for those kids, the kids who are my students, who I care deeply about, those kinds of kids. But it's important for all of us because these are the people who run our world, who mm. make our decisions for us. They're in charge. Yeah. Let's go back to the excellent sheep. In the book, you present these really interesting statistics. You're saying that in 1970, something like seven in 10 first year uni students are really big on developing a philosophy of life. And you've got about maybe three in 10 prioritizing financial security. And yet 30 years later in 2011, these numbers flip basically. So you've yeah. got something like eight in 10 interested in financial security. What's going on there? Let's note that uh, the actual language of the survey doesn't ask about financial security. It asks about whether you're interested in being very rich. Oh, I okay, believe that's right. the word. Not even just secure. <laughs> well, what's going on there? I mean, look, it's not the fault of these students. I mean, uh, I don't blame these kids for any of the things that I'm talking about. They're, they are what we've asked them to be. 
And since 1970, I think really starting around 1980, I mean, the benchmark in the United States is the election of Ronald Reagan, the year after the election of Margaret Thatcher, um, there was a very significant shift in societal values. Undoubtedly for very complex reasons, but it's really unmistakable. As Gordon Gekko famously said in the movie, greed is good. And also, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society. Right? There is no such thing as society, right. So a movement away from, well, I mean, uh, people talk about neoliberalism. Uh, I think one way to describe neoliberalism or market fundamentalism is the idea that the only values are monetary values. The only respectable thing to care about, the only legitimate thing to care about is money. And then, of course, this ideology drove policies that created incredible inequality. So now, I mean, look, you have these students who really can be very wealthy and not too many years after they graduate from university. So that's what they're told to value. That's what's offered them as a reward for all their work. So 80% of them say that that's what they want. It's quite interesting. I think um, a good question to ask of any text or movie or anything really is how does it picture the good life? And it seems that what we're seeing as the good life here is being a successful upper middle class professional. That seems to be the excellent sheep paradigm for the good life. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I saw this convergence, right? Whereas you once saw, it's not that you once saw hippies on campus. I feel like even when I went to college in the early 80s and, and earlier, you saw lots of different kinds of people. And what you saw was young people doing what I think young people should do and naturally do, which is trying out different kinds of lifestyles, different sets of values. What I saw at Yale and see in so many campuses is that they all seem already to be converging on this one type of person that they all want to become, which is the successful upper middle class professional. They dress that way. They talk that way. They aren't countercultures on campus, whatever counterculture means. And it can mean many different things. Let me ask you, what is the carnage among young people as a result of all this? You said that you really cared about your students. And it's, I think it's quite clear that you talk to a lot of them in the book and you represent their experience. Can you give us a sense of how this affects them? Sure. So what struck me most obviously when I was still teaching, and I talk about in an essay that I wrote just as I was leaving, what I focus on was this lack of direction that I talked about. I had so many students who just had no idea what they wanted to do and just drifted through their 20s. And, and it was really painful to see. It caused them a great deal of distress. I think especially, I mean, to me, it's about First of all, not being able to locate what it is that's important to you. I don't like to use the word passion because at least in the States, it's really become a cliche. But what is it that matters to you and what do you like to do? I think not being able to locate it and then once having located it, if they've located it, not being able to give themselves permission to authorize themselves to pursue it if it isn't a path that leads to significant wealth and status, if it isn't one of the big five occupations. So that difficulty in finding direction was what I saw when I was a professor. And then I wrote this uh, essay, and the essay was read widely, and I started to hear from lots of students from many schools. And I realized that underneath that was something that even the students I knew best, and I knew students really well, concealed from me, which is this incredible level of psychological distress. This has been documented by adolescent psychologists, and I think it's fairly well known at this point very high levels of depression, anxiety, self-harm, 
you know, skyrocketing rates of the use of mental health services and or uh, psychopharmacology, that's the cost. There's also seems to be a sense that they're living, walking resumes, right? That their identity is the same as their achievements. And I can imagine that can get very tiresome and really depressing because there's always someone with a better, better exactly. resume than you. Exactly. You're always, you're in this constant competition and the psychology, and here I'm thinking of Alice Miller's great book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, which was so important to me in writing this book. Ultimately, it's a substitute for parental love, right? So the, you're raised by parents. At this point, parents who probably were excellent sheep themselves 30 years ago, who uh, accept nothing less than perfection because their own identity and sense of self-worth depends on getting their kids into elite schools. So getting an A becomes how you get parental love. And then when you get an A minus, the love is withdrawn. And that sets the dynamic. And life just becomes this endless, you know, this kind of need to constantly fill this vacuum, to constantly sort of make yourself feel like you're loved because you're achieving. And that's a game that nobody can win. It's a game that I played for a long time. Nobody can win that game of sort of other directed external reinforcement of the worth of the self. And the only way around that is to create, you know, an internal locus of, of validation. Yeah. At that point in the book, when you did talk about the gifted child, you talked about your own experience and how you're the child of immigrants. And I think of that line in Hamilton, immigrants, we get the job done. And there's this whole narrative of immigrant striving. Um, and I think even Lin-Manuel Miranda has this whole, he was inspired by his dad, who's his high achiever as well. I think you probably relate to this, right? Like your dad wanted certain um, kinds of success from your life, let's say. Absolutely. The options in my family were doctor. That was the only option. Immigrant Jewish family, that's what he wanted his sons to be. And look, I mean, you could posit that for the rest of us, this is great because immigrants, you know, and high achieving kids in general, they are highly trained technocrats who often do, uh, you know, they're accomplished surgeons or whatever it is they are. But I think the cost for them is horrific and also... They're technocrats, but that doesn't mean that they're the leaders that society needs because they're so risk averse. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Like what parent doesn't want middle-class security for their kids? And I think, I mean, I'm the child of immigrants as well. They're, when they're moving to a new country, they want security. And if the best chance at security is get a good education, get a high paying job, then we can start to think about meaning and purpose after that. But Let's get our priorities straight. What would you say well, back to that? Here's what I would say. I would say that there's a difference between middle-class security and the kind of status-seeking that the parents were talking about and the children they produce are hungry for. Middle-class security is not enough. You've got to be at the top. You've got to have all the laurels and all the credentials. So there's that. There's also the fact that we live in an economy that's dynamic, that's in flux. We don't know what's going to make for security 30 years from now. Parents don't know. And, you know, this is like why my dad wanted us to be doctors, because he was stuck in that paradigm and he couldn't imagine that his children could be successful in any other way. None of us are doctors and we're all doing fine. <laughs> and then lastly, you can try to put meaning to one side and worry about it, quote unquote, later. But I don't really think it works like that. And I'm very clear in the book that there must often have to be a trade-off. 
You know, you can't necessarily have it all. And pursuing a path that's meaningful to you might indeed mean that your life is harder. But I talked about mental distress among students. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I've seen any number of news stories about studies that find that the highest levels of mental distress as judged by, you know, substance abuse, suicide, divorce, are in law, medicine, and finance. And, and parents who are in those occupations often know this. Uh, I think it's hard for them to get out of their own mindset when it comes to their kids. You haven't written a spiritual treatise with in excellent shape, but you do allude at times to this idea of a, a spiritual rot, I guess, that, that comes when you when you want to be at the top of your game. Like there is a pleasure, would you say, at at having made it to the top and a sense of superiority because you've made it through this incredibly selective, difficult system and you're among your peers, you're all like the, the cream of the crop. There is a pleasure at that. I mean, at one point you do talk about how um, you had difficulty talking to a plumber <laughs> in your 30s and you were wondering, yeah. did my elite education just ill prepare me for, for associating with people who didn't have the same background as me? Right. But about that pleasure, I mean, I've experienced that pleasure too, the pleasure of succeeding, the pleasure of being lauded. But it reminds me of something that I've heard anorexic girls, especially sort of the pro-Annas, the Annas and the Mias, will say, um, nothing tastes as good as being thin feels. Ah, that's, uh, yeah, 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 right. That's actually a quote from Kate Moss, the supermodel. Right? But probably okay. it's what the pro-bulimia and pro-anorexia crew um, might think of that and, as well. And I, think, yeah. and I think the psychology is very similar. It's just kind of anorectic perfection that my students aim at. But the analogy is, yeah, being thin feels good, but feels in what sense? I mean, you feel like you've won, you feel like you're pretty, but actually you feel horrible because you're starving. Mm. And that's my analogy for the feeling of being at the top. Nothing you know, nothing feels as good as tasting victory, as the yeah. taste of victory. But what is it really like? I mean, I, I, I don't really think it's nourishing. You're listening to Life and Faith and Justine's conversation with Bill Derezowitz, former Yale professor and author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. We're now going to get into the meaningful life part of Bill's subtitle. I asked Bill what he might say to those who said that only the privileged had the luxury to concern themselves with questions of meaning. I think um, the opportunity to live a meaningful life is something that we owe everybody. We owe it to everybody. We owe a great, free, higher education to everybody. I think this is a civil right. I think this is a human right. Many young people, most young people, do not have the luxury of thinking about meaning. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't advocate for it as a right, but also, look, I've heard that argument many times before. And not in this case, but in most cases, it tends to come from the mouth of a young person at a college that I'm talking at, who clearly grew up with all the advantages, <laughs> is not one of the poor or even the middle class, is using other people as an excuse not to think about what they're doing with their lives. So, yeah, most people don't have that luxury. You have to ask yourself, do you have that luxury? And if you do, 
You're not fooling anyone by saying, well, meaningful life, that's a privilege. Yes, you have, you're privileged. You're still going to be privileged. In fact, if you choose an, one of the options that's not quote unquote meaningful, like going to Wall Street, you're going to be a hundred times more privileged. So who are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Now you're not religious, but you use the word soul um, to yeah. talk about the self. What's going on there? And can you tell us a bit about how you triggered Steven Pinker in the use of that word? Soul? Oh, gosh. Right. So first of all, let me say this is frustrating to me. Not I'm not just a non-religious person. I'm a formerly religious person. I grew up in, a, in an Orthodox Jewish community, and um, I became militantly atheistic very suddenly at the age of 15. And I'm still an atheist, but I'm not militant about it anymore. And one of the reasons I'm not militant about it is precisely because I recognize that it is um, in religion and often only in religion where uh, we find the language with which we can articulate, I find the language with which I can articulate the things that I'm talking about. So sometimes I use the word soul. Sometimes I use the word salvation. I start to sound very churchy in, in the most sort of, uh, in the passages of the book. surprise you? <laughs> well, I'm Jewish, so, you know, sounding churchy. But um, <laughs> no, for a long time, I've realized that uh, I approach my work as a teacher as much as a preacher than anything else. Um, I'm not, I'm not preaching a particular doctrine, but I'm preaching moral seriousness, taking your life seriously, thinking about the good life. And secular modernity hasn't really, uh, developed a vocabulary that I found to do that with that carries the kind of weight that religious language does. Now, Pinker's, uh, I mean, I don't know his work that well, but I take it that he's militant, he's kind of a militant atheist. Or waving religious language in front of him is like waving a red flag in front of the nose of a bull. I talk about not only soul, but self, and I talk about building a self, and I quote a passage from John Keats about, you know, the veil of soul making. The world is the veil of soul making, where you have to make your soul. Your soul doesn't come to you prepackaged. You have to make it. And Pinker exploded because, you know, he said, you know, none of me, me or none of our colleagues have ever talked about whether a, a potential colleague of somebody we might hire is any good at helping students build a self. And, you know, my response was, yeah, you're right. None of you think about that. And this may be getting a little far afield, but um, I guess it also relates to secularism versus religion. Because universities, the secular mission is to create knowledge. And that's about research, and it has nothing to do with students at all. It may be graduate students. And then there's another mission that universities inherit from the time when colleges were religious institutions. And that has to do with everything we've been talking about, helping students build a self, helping students figure out what it means to live a good life. It's not about knowledge. It's about values. Uh, it's not about teaching facts and skills. It's about reading texts and leading discussions that help students explore these things for themselves. But because professors are rewarded for their scholarship and not their teaching, Pinker is right. Nobody asks whether professors are good at that. And as a result, very few of them are, or very few of them are both good at it and give themselves the time to do it, to mentor students. Yeah. Mm. You also talk about in the book how, um, as an Australian, I, this is a context that I'm not that familiar with, but were you saying something about how there are some religious kind of colleges in the States that they're actually far better, let's say, at trying to help students think through those bigger questions of, of meaning and purpose? Is that right? 
Yes, but let me say, it isn't necessarily the case that a religious school will be good at it or better, and it isn't necessarily the case that a secular school will be bad at it. But yes, in the course of hearing from many hundreds of students between the time I wrote the essay in 2008 and the book came out in 2014, I heard from students at religious schools. I think by that point I had spoken at some religious schools. Uh, I mean, some of them are, are, you know, just sort of caves of fundamentalist darkness, but, you know, many of them aren't. And the reason they aren't is that they do see it as their mission to talk about matters of the soul, to talk about the good life. There's an official institutionally sanctioned place to do that. And at a secular school, there isn't going to be. Uh, as I say, some secular schools, especially lib what we call liberal arts colleges in this country, independent colleges, not part of larger universities, can be quite good at that. But it really is a matter of institution to institution. Okay, tell me about technocratic education, because it sounds like, what, um, a technocratic education is one that doesn't want to talk about values. Am I on the right track? Doesn't want to talk about meaning. Absolutely. It just wants to pump out experts and people experts. to fill jobs. Is that That's right? That's correct. And this is and this is how education is explained to students and how it's sold to um, taxpayers. It's what uh, the corporate world is under, understand to want from graduates. And again, I mean, we need technocrats and experts, but um, I think we also need citizens. I think we also need human beings. And again, most importantly, these students need to f recognize that they themselves are human beings. Let me just say, I did a panel discussion uh, over Zoom uh, several years ago before the pandemic in Japan. I mean, they were in Japan. Uh, they were very concerned about Japanese universities and not not having enough in the top 100 rank world university rankings, which I thought was idiotic. But what I really thought was idiotic was that the question they kept coming back to was, how can we make our universities serve the human resource needs of global corporations? That was the framing. And I finally said, students are not resources, human resources. Students are not resources. They're not oil and gas fields to be exploited by global corporations. They're human beings, and they need to be treated that way. And what happened? What did they say back to that? Nothing. They just went on. This is the problem with being a bomb thrower or a gadfly. Seriously, this has happened any number of times when I've said disturbing things in contexts where can't, they can't be heard. People just pretend that it hasn't been said. Hmm. You can't question the premise of the question. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? I mean, it's, you know, you've joked that you're a bomb thrower, a gadfly. You pointed out all these inconvenient questions and now you're no longer in the system anymore. Is that the cost that you're bearing? The timeline is backwards. I didn't okay. start to write about this until I was leaving, although if I hadn't been leaving, I still would have written about it. But the reason I had to leave, I mean, there are a number of reasons, but basically I didn't get my next job. I wasn't going to get tenure at Yale. That's very, very difficult for a junior professor. I expected to teach somewhere else. It never happened. And it never happened, I think, mainly because I spent too much time doing things that you're not supposed to do, and anything that's not your research is something you're not supposed to do. And the main thing I spent too much time on was teaching and mentoring students and talking to students, because that's what I cared about. But, you know, being a teacher, being a good teacher is not what gets you rewarded in academia. So what I've written since then is absolutely continuous with the reasons I left, but... That's not why I wasn't ejected because I had written these things. Right. Yep. Thank you for clarifying. Um, just a couple more questions. 
what is the value of a humanities education? You could write a whole book on that, really, but just give us a taster of what you might say. I did, I did yes. Uh, I have several chapters on that. Um, all due respect to the other fields. Uh, my dad was a scientist. I was a science major, social sciences. They're very important fields. The way I describe the difference between them and the humanities is that those fields kind of direct your attention outwards to the physical world, if it's the sciences, to the social world, if it's the social sciences. You're studying things outside of yourself, and you're doing it in a scientific way. That means empirically, quantitatively. Uh, the humanities are different. The humanities ask you to look within, at least I think when they're taught properly, because they are the study of the ways people have looked within. They're primarily the study of the arts, the study of literature or art or music or whatever, visual art, music. And so they had play a different role in a college education and in a young person's life. They are the ways that you can start to ask those questions. Philosophy, asking questions about the good life, and all the other concerns of a human being, you know, love and time and God and everything that isn't your uh, area of technical expertise, which again is very important to pay attention to in college. But then there's this other thing. So that's my argument. And in the United States, from what I understand more or less uniquely, you actually can do both. You're actually supposed to do both at university in your first degree. That's our structure. Unfortunately, there's less and less uh, where it's actually happening. In just that little list that you provided, love, time, God, like it yeah. got existential very quickly. <laughs> like meaning and purpose, these are all spiritual matters. Is that part Absolutely. of the package that we need to name as well, that they are the biggest questions of all, really? Absolutely. Is that what an education should be dedicated to? That to me is what the core of the education should be. Again, I don't gainsay the need to develop technical expertise and make a living when you get out. But yeah, a big chunk of education needs to be dedicated to that. And of course, they're existential questions. I mean, you know, Dostoevsky sits down to write a novel, or Jane Austen, for that matter, who doesn't look like Dostoevsky, but she's asking the same questions. What does it mean to be a good person and to navigate your world? And I would also say that under the sort of secularized humanities, the religious texts become humanistic texts, and you read them not as dogma, but as repositories of human wisdom and, and human spiritual striving. Okay, this last question. If you were asked to give a commencement speech tomorrow at any kind of institution of your choice, and you have the floor, you have all these um, eager minds, eager, excellent sheep waiting to hear your wisdom, what would you tell them about what it means to live a meaningful life? Oh, my God. You know, it's funny. No one ever has asked me to give a commencement. I've given lots of talks to first-year students. Nobody ever wants me at commencement. Um, Hang on, and just, as for, result, oh, just for clarity, this is for, for people who are graduating, is that right? Commencement for people is? who are graduating, yeah. uh, commencement, it's a strange term, but they're, com yeah. well, they're commencing the rest of their lives. That's the yes. idea of that word. Um, so I've never had to think about it, but um, there are lots of different ways to define meaning, and I think people will, would most, most readily say that it's about being in service to others and being connected to others. And of course, that's true, but it's not what I would say. I would say that living a meaningful life means living a life that feels like the right life for you to live, that feels like a life in which you can be most holy yourself. And I might also say that I think doing that is going to enable you to live a life that's useful to others. You know, there isn't just one way or one kind of way to be useful. I think people now think, oh, nonprofit, or I've got to save the world, fix climate change. Think about all the people who are useful to us in our lives. 
they don't necessarily fit into one of those categories. I think that if you're doing work that draws on your deepest powers and you're not simply chasing external rewards like status and money, you will use whatever your unique talents are in whatever way you find to, to be of service to others and therefore connected to others, connected to something larger. You've been listening to Light and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. I don't know about you, Simon, but I could listen to Bill talk all day. So please do check out Bill's excellent book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. And also see The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. I'll post links in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation about education and meaningful life. Here at CPX, we're all about these sorts of questions. And maybe you have friends who are into them as well. Why not share the conversation with them? Also, leave us some feedback at whatever podcast platform you use. It really helps us to get the word out. Next week. Nazi Germany, why do you have a whole generation of young men prepared to listen to this crazy guy? And they look back to the dominant child-rearing practice a generation earlier. In Nazi Germany, a generation earlier, fathers were very distant and authoritarian. And so, paradoxically, young boys grow up wanting this stern father figure.